We often ask on this show what makes a war movie a war movie. Is it the depiction of battle? Well, we've seen plenty of films that don't depict battle, but it seems important. Is it the themes of death and camaraderie between combatants? Yeah, that seems right. Does the war have to have actually happened? Wouldn't that preclude some of our favorite entrants in the genre? A lot of questions without straight answers. And we come back to this question time and time again because each film provides a litany of exceptions to the rule of how we might go about classifying and categorizing the films that are the subject matter of the show. With that in mind, we turn to the inevitable robot wars of the future and their depiction in film. There are parts of these wars that are familiar. Troops engaging in ground combat while air support threatens. Guys firing rockets out of the back of beat-up pickup trucks. The crackle of machine gun fire. The desperate stands against overwhelming opposition. But there are other parts that confound our rules. Laser weapons that don't exist yet. Infiltration units that believably impersonate humans despite being anything but. The use of time travel as a weapon of war sort of reminds me of our conversation about the Wright brothers being asked after developing the first working airplane. Can you carry bombs in that thing? In 1991, James Cameron returned to the universe he had created in an earlier work of comparatively schlocky horror, The Terminator. In this film, Sarah Connor has successfully completed a transformation she started in the first installment, from innocent cocktail waitress to badass future fighting soldier mom. There's just one catch. She's incarcerated in a high-security mental institution where the criminal psychologist from the first film is attempting to disabuse her of the knowledge she has of the future. It's a postmodern Cassandra story. Her son John, now the target of the artificial intelligences of the future, is in a foster home. The robot sent back to finish the job is a major upgrade to the original, which is a problem because an OG model has been sent back by the future resistance as John and Sarah's last line of defense. It's a proxy war fought by the two superpowers of the post-apocalypse via two robots, a mom and her preteen son in early 90s suburban Los Angeles. And the stakes are high. If the Connors and their pet Schwarzenegger can stop the new Terminator, they might be able to stave off nuclear Armageddon, an event vividly depicted in the film with a recurring dream that Sarah Connor has. Do all of these ingredients add up to a war film? Well, who gives a shit? This is the bonus feed, and we get to fuck around on the margins here. And, like a well-prepared pork chop, it tastes very good. Did you call moi a dipshit? Today on Friendly Fire, it's Terminator 2. Judgment Day. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that needs your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Just leading us off with the impression, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the funnest one, and I figured there would be a lot of it today. So, uh, why not start? My favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger pronunciation is the word learn or learning. And this is the <laughs> you, film where learning. it comes from, because there's like three <laughs> syllables in his pronunciation. Learning. Yeah. You can't form complex machines. So fun. 
Big fan. <laughs> this movie maybe starts more war movie than it than it stays. Mm-hmm. It's the future with the with the metal men crushing the skulls and right at the beginning there. A lot of apocalypse war right at the top, and then we revisit uh, the apocalypse in the form of some dream sequences. But the right. rest of it, we're just, it's a weird movie where where the whole movie is foreshadowing the events that take place at the beginning of the film. Well, I think this movie is really a statement about the militarization of the police, because mm. that's really the big mm. action set piece, right? Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It is wonderful, and the thing is, they do a good job in the in the introduction of the two characters they it's very plausible how it comes to be that arnold uh schwarzenegger arrives in an industrial area and the first place he encounters is a biker bar on the edge of town which totally makes sense in the moment it doesn't feel forced and then uh the t-1000 arrives and the first person he encounters under a bridge is a cop on patrol totally makes sense but yeah. then the rest of the movie, we are in a cop versus biker universe <laughs> where they both are—they are both are perfectly attired throughout the rest of the film. And you just wonder if it had been reversed, if the movie, if Arnold had taken a cop's uniform and the T one thousand was in a ill-fitting biker uniform, or if Arnold had appeared at like the pro shop of a golf club. Mm-hmm. And was just like in golf pants the whole Perfect. movie. <laughs> Give me your short, your shorts, your polo shirt, and your golf clubs. <laughs> He's whirring around on like a four-seater <laughs> golf cart. Down, now, 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 That raises an interesting question because I can't think of a time where I hadn't seen this movie. But yeah. for a lot of people... There is a good 40 minutes of the film where it is unclear who the good Terminator and the bad Terminator is. Right. And it's fairly intentional about that mm-hmm. by by giving us a police officer figure with questionable motivations until that scene in the mall, we aren't sure what to make of the reappearance of the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator and who is going after John Connor for, for what, what reason, right? Yeah. And it does. It, it, there are two whole scenes where you see characters process, like have have their brains shattered by the idea that the Schwarzenegger Terminator is not the one to be the most afraid of. Yeah. Well, and, and interesting, the T one thousand is an uh, is a um, technological improvement over uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator, and one of the things it learned to do was smile when talking to civilians. Mm, so right. in those early scenes, like the the T one thousand asks some questions he's trying to find john connor he talks to his parents talks to some kids and he does a pretty good job of being like a friendly i think the the way you know he's a villain is that he's pretty good at being friendly which is in the context of these movies pretty scary because no one else is friendly (laughs) (laughs) i mean john connor is a little friendly he's pretty personable little dude yeah the little bart simpson of this movie I read that they re-recorded all of his dialogue after the fact because he aged during the production in such a way that there was no consistency in his voice. Oh, really? 
Yeah. Yeah, like, I think he had like a growth spurt, right? He like yeah. he, he's like much taller in some scenes than others. Well, I read that he is supposed to be 10 years old in this movie, and there's no way he's he's a day under 14. I mean, right. he's 12 during the production. What? Really? Yeah, 12 or 13. All right. Well, I'd buy I'd buy 13. Yeah. But not 10. What about his little uh no good red hair buddy? <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. He's <laughs> So much like so many dudes I knew growing up. Like he's kind of a dead ringer for a, a schoolmate of mine growing up. Well, and he had the presence of mind to be like, nah, I don't know. yeah. And then he then goes over and is like, get out of here, man. I'll cover for you. Pretty street smart little <laughs> uh, little goober. The foster parents are really uh, like, like what has happened to John and and his mom in this movie is like, it's really scary and sad. Yeah. Like what 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 they've both gone through and the the foster parents are are low key like one of the like scariest and saddest things in the movie. Like they really resent and hate John. Interesting. Interesting that that's your reading child of the 90s. <laughs> because <laughs> as a child of the 70s, those foster parents looked pretty great to me. <laughs> you know, like they they were kind of cool. It did. They, neither one of them was drunk. You just like that one of them had a T-top. The, the the Camaro was pretty cool for sure. But but you know like they could have that could have been so much more heavy-handed. There could have been a scene where they were beating him or they you know like in the in the seventies, if your foster parents were like trying to get you to eat dinner instead of like putting their cigarettes out on your pillow. Uh, you were like, yeah, I lucked out. I don't know, man. Like the, the idea that he, he like peels out on his little, on his little moped and like his parents don't seem to care that he has just gone, has just left the house and is not being supervised. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. This is such a nineties kid versus seventies kid thing. You're like, <laughs> they're really neglectful. Those parents. They are. <laughs> you don't know what Terminators are going to show up at the at the fucking Reseda Mall. This is so great. <laughs> ben, I got to take the other side of this too, man. I feel like that was the hundredth time that he's peeled out of that driveway, yeah. which is why the foster parents just sort of throw their their hands up and are like, "What? What else are they going to do?" John Connor is the dick in that moment. If they didn't care, they wouldn't want him to clean up yeah, his room. Yeah, they want him to clean his room, Ben. There's a lot of supervision. They're That's just, fucked up. They're a little overwhelmed. I never had to clean my room in my life. <laughs> I know. You had you had your cleaning lady. We have room Roombas for that. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the if you look at a similar character in Bad News Bears, the uh the kid on the dirt bike, we never see his parents at all, presumably because he doesn't have any and he's living underneath the youth center and surviving on like half cans of Michelob that he steals. You know, Ben, the one scene that supports your argument is the one where John calls home to check in on them. And when they realize that uh, that Janelle and Todd have been killed, he mentions to the Terminator that, like, Janelle's never this nice. Well, yeah, because she was being super fake lame nice. I just, yeah. I love this. This is like a crazy doorway into our minds. They were going to get rid of his dog, guys. That was that was on the agenda for Janelle and Todd, was get rid of John Connor's dog. You can't get rid of Wolfie. They were mad at the dog because it was barking so crazy because there were Terminators all over. 
Yeah, because they were Terminators. <laughs> I guess she was a Terminator. Todd, Todd really caught it there. I Does felt, Todd I, die the worst? Todd's death is pretty bad. He does not see it coming. But the dude, the the uh, the the cop at the mental institution, yeah, he gets it pretty bad too. He's a real twitcher, that that cop. Yeah. I had committed to a, a moment of pedantry with him until I found a way better one, but uh, I, I could read the the one about the. Sorry. I want to address that in in the background of this show, there's a dog that sounds like he has some Terminators around. Yeah. Have you been replaced by the Team 1000, Ben? You're never usually this nice to us. No, Rover is just uh, Rover's just barking at uh, passing cars or something. <laughs> it's not. It's not me. But uh, but anyways, the security guard at the uh, at the institution had a moment of pedantry that I caught. It's like it's a pretty good one. It's this is not the real moment of pedantry for the episode, but uh, I thought I would share it because it uh, I had a quibble with it. The mm. security guard at the institution looks at his cup, which has two jacks, two aces, and a queen, and he shouts, "Hey, I got a full house!" It's not a full house. It's two pair, right? So, I would love to play cards against that guy. <laughs> my my theory is that he's an idiot, mm. and this is a this is like authentic to his character. Agreed. Like I think that that's the the real curse of the pedant is that yeah. every time somebody gets something wrong, the pedant feels forced to correct it. That feels right? like an example of someone on the internet explaining a joke to the person that wrote the joke. <laughs> mm. Right. Yeah, a Twitter commenter. But that was a pretty... I mean, there are a lot of bad deaths in this movie. And and interestingly, it became a plot point that Arnold was only wounding people. So the body count... This must have been in during that era when cultural critics were starting to decry the escalating body counts of all these adventure movies. Little did they know that in the uh, teens we would be... <laughs> Taking in, out into the millions at a time, yeah, right? <laughs> Only two hundred million people died in this movie, yeah. but yeah. So Arnold goes around and fucking kneecaps. What thirty people in this movie? Thirty people yeah. permanently crippled, and and it's kind of a it's like a little bit of a laugh line. That guy gets a spinal shot gas canister shot at him oh, too. I don't think ow. that guy's going to be walking again. Ow. How did they have the restraint to have that gas canister not go into the guy's butt? <laughs> like, James, James Cameron, he's got a different sense of humor than we do. Yeah. If you look at his Don't entire oeuvre, there's not a single up your butt in all of James Cameron. Not, not up, just off, you know, like like taking it and like, took us, you yeah, know? See what I'm saying? That would have been funny. That's why James Cameron is James Cameron. This is a very serious movie, Ben. <laughs> that is asking you to take it seriously. The, va the the laugh lines all belong to Arnold. Yeah. I mean, Sarah Connor is the least humorous character in the history of cinema. There is n She is not allowing any fun. Yeah. She's had the, like, the worst go of it. She's... The, the institution is genuinely a terrifying place. But she also, like, lacks insight about what what she's doing to her own son, you know, like one of the kind of character arcs for her is that once, once she and, and John are out and reunited, she, you know, is just checking him for, for bullet holes and is like she, she her entire existence has been subsumed by 
the goal of keeping him alive through Judgment Day so that he can become the great military leader at, at the expense of being a good mom, you know, at, at the expense of like parenting him when he needs parenting. <laughs> I know that you don't think parenting is important, John, but I do. I did not expect this to be the place that this episode went. Oh, I love it. Wow. I love it. Um, that is the thing, that is one of the elements, I feel like, Ben, that is the most wonderful about the whole Terminator-verse, is the, is the characterization of Sarah Connor as someone who was just a, you know, just a young gal going about her life as a bartender, and her horrifying experience that turns into both, like, the, the one love of her life, her shot at motherhood and then this like increasingly paranoid institutionalized evangelist for the future. And she, and she does such an, it's, it's such an incredible character arc over the course of several movies and so believable and so low key horrifying. I mean, it's, mm. it's high key horrifying, but right. all the suggestion of what, of the, of the emotional torment of her experience of having her kid taken away of living like, I mean, John Connor at one point says like my mom would hook up with any guy that could teach us anything. And then right. she'd scare him away because of her, her freaky shit. And you just get this picture of the life they were leading from one survivalist camp to another in the desert. And it's all totally consistent within the universe, totally believable. It is a, a, you know, like a writer sitting down to the typewriter going, okay, assuming everything in the last movie is true, what are the like, like, what's the upshot of that? Like, what changes about about these characters? What would she go and do? Right. And and Linda, Linda Hamilton is playing, you know, like the ultimate sort of strong female lead, but she does such an incredible job of, of making that transformation from the early Terminator movies where she's just freaked out and scared and running and like to this movie where she's born again hard, but you never ever feel like she can do any superhero tricks. She's not unbelievable for a moment. And she, and all that pain is in her face. I mean, that's the, yeah. it's the tent pole that holds the whole thing up. And being born again hard has come at a great cost. Yes, yes. Especially when it comes to her parenting. Right? <laughs> Fucking A, man. <laughs> This film does something interesting with the Sarah character to prove your point, which is put her in opposition to an actual family and actu and, a, and a few other families. Like, not only is she in opposition to uh, Janelle and Todd, but the Enrique character hmm. and his family out in the desert that provides comfort and ammunition and food to them during that break. And the Dyson family, too. I mean, like, yeah. like she is persuaded not to kill Miles Dyson by just like basically seeing what she's about to destroy as, as yeah. a, a beautiful thing that she has no access to. I think absent those counterpoints, you might not really get the idea of how hard Sarah is. Right. Well, but also like it's key in that Dyson moment, she connects, she connects with that whole scene and she, and she, she acts in that whole scene through the lens of her being a mother. Like yeah. the reason she doesn't kill Dyson is because she, because the part of her that's a mother 
activates and we've watched her try to regain some of that mother, that whole scene where she watches the Terminator kind of playing cat's cradle with John Connor. And she's like, it's the, you know, he's the best father he ever had. Like she's trying to get her emotions back. And then she comes unglued at Dyson's and you know that you couldn't have that story with a man in that role. Like her motherhood was crucial to, to Dyson surviving and to the whole second half of the film. And then she, and then she screams at him when she's saying like, you think you're being creative, you know, building these killing machines. Like you don't know what it's like to make a life. And (laughs) it's like, I just think things should work properly and vacuum shouldn't lose section. (laughs) But like John Connor at that moment was like, Hey mom, like, like chill out. And that uh, again, like the whole scene. Hey, wait, maybe get off their counter and stop <laughs> smoking in their house, mom. <laughs> what was up with the can lights in the kitchen of Dyson's home? Like that entire setup was was future weird. Yeah, he had like uh, he had like the kind of trusses <laughs> over his over his kitchen counter that you see at like a outdoor stage at a at like a carnival. Or something. It was, it was, uh, I mean, this movie was 91, right? Yeah. So there's a little bit of that Miami Vice style still, still in stuff that, um, that like, uh, glass brick wall, yeah, like curved, curved staircase kind of, uh, 80s style, but the Dyson house. They were the production designer was like, okay, we can either have that kind of house or one pink polo shirt with the collar popped, but we cannot have both. (laughs) What about Esapatha Matheson? You mean Reba the male lady? I mean, crazy to see her. To I mean, she does a great job with a with not not a lot of screen time, not much of a part, and she goes she runs the emotional spectrum, like. She's the person that like maybe has the most realistic reaction to everything that's going on of anyone. Yeah, mm. like the the screaming with the with the tears and the snot when running the down her face. When the arm gets degloved, her reaction yeah. is especially poignant there. Right, and and that's something that you and I talk about all the time, Adam. Is like in in sci-fi movies, like people should react realistically to wild sci-fi shit happening. Yeah, and uh, this is a great movie for that. Like she gets that opportunity and she fucking lands it. Right. When, when Schwarzenegger first arrives on the scene and walks into that biker bar stark naked, yeah. there are two, I guess, two different waitresses. Uh, yeah, like look him up and down and both of them get like really salacious looks like, <laughs> Oh, hello. Yeah. I- implying yeah. first of all, that the Terminator has a dick. Right. And that it's massive. Yeah. That Skynet was like, well, we better give this guy a dick or big dick. Let's give this guy a big old crank. But also everybody else in that bar, all these biker dudes, a totally naked muscle guy walks into your bar <laughs> He's six foot five or whatever Schwarzenegger is. And he right. walks around the bar just looking at everybody. And and there's, yes, there is a dumbfoundedness to the people, but not anywhere near what the reaction would be. I mean, in a biker bar like that, they would, st- they would start cheering the second the dude walked in. Right. right I mean, right. it would just be like, what is, uh, yes, welcome to the bar, freak show. Well, that, that I need your clothes, boots, and motorcycle line. 
Like it turns into like this. This is like a, a nude man walks into a bar as the setup to a joke. <laughs> you know, like this guy is gonna dine out on this story forever in his mind. <laughs> He's like, oh, I got it, I got it. You forgot to say please. And then I blew smoke in his face. It oh. was great. Yeah, and then you know, put his cigar out on the guy's chest, like. You know, that's an escalating move. You'd better have your hand. If you have a gun in the back of your pants, you ought to have your hand on it. We find he has a gun later. That rule of fighting that goes something like you never want to fight the guy who's super calm. That's the most dangerous person. Right. In, in, a, in a group fight environment. You also never want to fight the guy who's naked. And calm. He should know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a naked is a force multiplier to calm in a really bad way. They cut the scene that showed that when he walks in there, he's got a throbbing erection. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that would be the thing that would make everybody just stand there totally dumbfounded. Right. Like, how how is he maintaining turgidity (laughs) at a time like this? It's a question of blood flow, Ben. (laughs) But this movie does go, it, it oscillates between really pretty poignant character development pretty poignant backstory front story there's a lot of for a time travel movie there's a lot of really appealing conundrums and you know it's not a time travel movie where you for instance where you fly the starship enterprise into a fucking toilet bowl and it comes out the other side and all of a sudden everybody's dressed like a hippie Um, that has never happened john and you know it (laughs) it's there's a lot of good just good sci-fi writing and characterization but then the, then there's another half of this movie which is just like a chase scene full of explosions and in the chase scene full of explosions there are all kinds of moments where no like people on the street are not reacting appropriately to a man walking out of a firestorm there there are two two tropes right there's the there's the action movie trope which kind of requires that things not be real but there's this other side. This is what makes it a great movie. This side of it that's grafted on that doesn't feel artificially grafted on that's threaded through it where it's a real, I mean, this is a, this is a heavy psychosocial drama. There is actually one part of one of those chase scenes. That's especially unreal that caught the attention of an internet pedant. And uh, I think this might be my favorite, pedantic quibble I have ever seen so far in doing this project. Would you guys like to hear it? So much. Yes. During a chase scene, the Terminator on a Harley passes in front of a Honda CRX that honks at him, but the sound is not that of a Honda CRX horn. Mm. (laughs) What is it the sound of? I don't know. Oh, he didn't go into what it is? I, I think he's just saying that they like they they didn't get the note right for that particular type of car. Well, what if the CRX owner went to J.C. Whitney and bought himself like a, a an aftermarket horn? That's plausible. Yeah, like what an idiot! Come on, <laughs> people customized their cars back then. I, know. I knew a it's guy a- that had a CRX and he claimed to have put like a BMW carburetor on it or something like that and it was like no you didn't no you didn't this is 1989 or whatever you did not you dumbass and he was like no 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 i totally did 
He didn't have the car right there to show me. He was talking about it in a bar. Adam, does that seem plausible to you? Does not. Right. Or a lot of bullshitters back then, Ben. Not like now. Was this guy in this bar naked who was telling you this? No, but he had a really tragic story about his step-parents. Oh. So I didn't press him too hard because he didn't get the love he needed. Guys, the one chase sequence that I feel like that really holds up is that, I think it's over the course of 30 minutes. It's the nighttime chase sequence. It's the one that involves the semi-truck full of nitrogen and also the helicopter. And that helicopter chase scene, I'm getting chills even thinking about it because it had been a while since I'd seen this movie. This is a, a film that I return to from time to time, but... When I saw this unfolding, I was like, do they fly the helicopter under the overpass? I don't know if they do. And then when they're about to, I'm like, oh my God, this is really ballsy. And then actually seeing the sequence play out with the helicopter going under, I was like, you never see this sequence shot practically. Like the balls of this sequence are outrageous. And the story behind it is, is maybe the most interesting part. So... Cameron had this thing set up like he had it storyboarded and ready and pitched like this was going to happen and the steadicam operator shooting aboard the helicopter was like no like I'm actually not going to go along for this ride this is too dangerous I'm not going to do it reasonable James Cameron said fuck it I'll do it myself and so it is him and the pilot's name is Chuck Tamburo, and he needs to have a name. Like, he has a resume that is 200 films long. Wow. He did this, he flew the sequence twice under the overpass, and I think <sighs> it is one of the most incredible aerial stunts in movie history. It is awesome. And it is so flat. Like, one of the things that makes it look fake is that the helicopter is so flatly flying through, it looks like it's on a dolly. It's incredible. Did he just get it up going pretty fast and then flatten it out and thread the needle? I don't know. And and the thing is, like, that stunt totally uh, obscures the other great stunt, which is the, the lift and up and over that the helicopter has to do earlier in the sequence, which is so close. That right. stunt, the, the one, because I, I 100% agree with you, this whole sequence, I keep, I kept looking for the helicopter to be on a dolly. Yeah. where we're just seeing the nose and it is fully flying this crazy route but the one where he, he where he gauges the overpass and decides not to go under it and goes over it hairball that is a it was not forced perspective either like that was that move. close I, I i i like i lifted up out of my seat as he went over that cuz he comes right back down yeah yeah it is violent chuck tamburo deserves an honorary oscar to me like it was unbelievable to watch his work. And this is in a sequence that involves a crashed semi-truck full of liquid nitrogen. Like, there's so much to love about this entire chase sequence. It's his, great. His first credit on IMDb as a helicopter pilot is 1975. God. He's been doing, he, he's been doing this work just freaking. Oh, wow. He was the helicopter pilot in Convoy, in Hooper, Smokey yeah. and the Bandit 2. Yep. Rocky Three, Blade Runner, First Blood. He's yeah. in everything. Scarface, A View to a Kill, Commando. I mean, half of the movies that we watch. Predator. The Carol Co. 
movies alone. Oh, God. When that Carol Co. logo appears and the music from the Rambo films play, I get the chills every time. I fucking love Carol Co. <laughs> Mario Kassar and Andrew Vajna. Come on. It doesn't get any better than them. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing at me. I'm trying to be sincere with you. I fucking love Albertson's supermarkets. <laughs> it's such a mark of a specific quality to me. Like, it really sets the tone. You hear that sting, you know yeah. what you're in for. You're in yeah, for fun. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You're in for fun. In for a penny, in for a pound. Carol Co. A, uh, a production company that went out of business. It bankrupted itself because of... Uh, uh, Cutthroat Island, because it was not part of a, a package studio system. It was semi-independent, as production companies go. That's another thing to like to point out about this movie, is, is essentially it's an independent film. Yeah. And that this was not the era where, obviously not unheard of, like Star Wars is like a great example of like a huge budget sci-fi indie feature that got a wide release and like made a ton of money, but... Mm-hmm. Mostly, mostly the, this type of film does not come out of uh, like independently financed projects, and uh, and I think like Star Wars, this is one of those like envelope pushing movies where like there are so many things in it that when you see them, it's the first time anybody ever pulled it off. Right. Looking at the filmography of Carol Co., it is a one hundred percent cocaine fueled enterprise. <laughs> You could oh, Angel Heart is the perfect example of a movie uh-huh. by these guys. That's just like oh, did you guys do any cocaine? Did you ever was the day cocaine move through this production at all? Iron Eagle Two, thank you. I just want to say that this is not a a problem specific to Carol Co. No. This whole cocaine thing. Johnny Handsome. <laughs> they wow. took some big swings. Air America. Oh wow, they did uh, they did Hamlet, <laughs> the 1990 version of it. Oh, and the Doors movie. Anyway, yes, this is a this is this is a, a a big risk. It was a. I mean, Cameron by this point, right, was a golden boy. He'd done. How far into his career was he? What were this his post abyss? He could basically choose his projects at this point. But why wouldn't he have gotten? Why Why did this have to be an independent picture? Why wasn't it uh, like fully? funded by a thousand venture capitalists he'd he'd done he'd done first blood 2 he'd done terminator he'd done aliens and the abyss he did like first blood he was uh, one of its writers he did not oh. direct that film that was yeah. uh, george p cosmatos but like he was he was basically firing on all cylinders here he'd already had five blockbusters right it's hard to it's hard to read the tea leaves on something like that, but I I know that like depending on how you finance a movie, you can also have a lot more upside. So if he knew that he would be able to get the money for Terminator Two, oh, no right. matter what, and could do it independently and and get like much more on the back end than he would doing it through a studio, right? You know, like that's that's got to be an attractive proposition sure i mean his he gets credited on like like he he must still be making 
millions of dollars a year off the Terminator IP, right? Must be. I mean, he, somebody's got to fund all those oxygen tanks to let him get down to to use the bathrooms <laughs> in the uh, first class cabins on the Titanic. Yeah, yeah. It's the only place he feels comfortable pooping. <laughs> <laughs> He's such an, an eccentric. A friend of mine was telling me about a documentary that he made about about like his voyage to the bottom of the sea and how he had to be the pilot of the submersible. He had to go himself. And his wife was like, yeah, uh, we both know that he could and probably will die. And there was like such an acceptance to James Cameron's adventurous spirit that I just, I cannot think of another filmmaker who has those kind of interests. Yeah. What a weirdo. Well, to ride that helicopter, to have a guy say like, I'm not taking this risk. And for him to be like, fire it up. Yeah. It's credit to him. And it's an, yeah. to, to take us back to the movie we're talking about, an incredible sequence uh, in, a, in a movie where there are a lot of, let me say, a lot of great action sequences and cool special effects, but some real clunkers too. This, this movie won an award for effects, I think, right? An Academy Award. Um, yeah. Like the opening sequence of the War of the Robots just looked like, looked like Tonka toys. I was not. I was <laughs> surprised how much Aliens sequential DNA was in this. Like there was a lot yeah. of sequences cut to rear projection that, right. uh, that cut together really nicely because like those are, those shots are only on screen for a second or so, like sort of blink if you miss style rear projection sequences. But like the tech is still there and it's graduated right. to this movie. The, uh, those opening war scenes really have an LV426 vibe <laughs> yeah. to them, Dude. don't they? Yeah, yep. they really do. But not in a way, not even as good. Like right. at least the Aliens universe, you felt immersed in it, where this just felt, yeah, like somebody was, like a lesser filmmaker was making an Aliens homage. I think the Aliens comparison is super apt in a couple of areas. The uh, the effects are one, but the James Cameron technique of introducing you to the ensemble and you needing you getting everything you need to know about your main characters in the first fifteen minutes is totally here. Yeah, uh, having every question you have about the world answered at about the half an hour to forty minute mark, also in this film, mm. like you know who the T one hundred one is, the T one thousand, John and Sarah Connor, almost right away, and then there's that Q and A session that John Connor and the Terminator have at about forty minutes in, where you understand the rules of the film, you know why the T one thousand is so dangerous, and you know why he's such a threat to everyone involved. And I don't think anyone does it better than James Cameron in his films. It, it made me nostalgic for action films of this kind that, that can just sort of do it so effortlessly. I thought um, the, the theme of it's in your nature to destroy yourselves uh, was also like, like I think a, a thing that James Cameron has dealt with in a lot of his films. It's definitely an alien. It's mm -hmm. kind of in Titanic, <laughs> I guess. But like that that idea that the like the human race gets sufficiently advanced to the point that it can't it can't help but self annihilate um, felt like a felt like a theme that this film is trying to chew on and something that feels 
especially, you know, present uh, in in my mind today. I think I, I vibed with that element of the film more this this watch through than I ever have before. Do you think there's so much sound and fury in the film that you sort of lose that thread? I agree that it's a great point to make, but it's it's almost whispered in the context of everything else. It, it's never directly addressed after a certain point because we're we're too busy blowing things up. But somehow yeah. this movie destroys all of the technology that would have led to Skynet. And Except for that one hand that's stuck in the cog, right? Right. Yep. Oh, the hand stuck in the cog. The yeah, crushed Arnold's hand. Arnold's forearm is in there. But somehow, and this is what's weird about time travel movies, somehow the continuity... Like the at a, at a certain point, throwing all that stuff into the fire didn't reset everybody. Or I mean, so right, everybody doesn't forget that they just had a experience <laughs> with a bunch of Terminators. Why are we in this smelting factory, and why is there a smelting factory in urban Los Angeles? <laughs> but the uh, but but so but that's possible if we're in a multiverse uh, universe, right? Where this unit this this world is one in which Skynet at one point did exist, but we're, we're saving the future of this universe from Skynet existing. You know, there's this kind of spiral off into time travel right. craziness. Yeah. Um, at which point you have to ask yourself, well, if there's an infinite number of universes, who cares how many of them are ruled by Skynet and how many of them are ruled <laughs> by like bronies who have, you know, <laughs> enacted it's, the it's, brony it's philosophy. one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> but but the but the idea that humans are going to destroy each other one way or another hooker by crook is left it's left hanging at the end because we're here we're we're where we are like somehow we got here even with dyson destroyed right and um with a heavier hand or under a lesser supervisor i think that would have irked but here yeah. you're just sort of like yeah right on man well, there's no Burke in this movie. There's no like craven business character that is gonna put, you know, like we gotta we gotta get this computer chip to market, you know, and I'm gonna stand in in Miles Dyson's way when he realizes right. the the cost of this thing that he's developing. Interesting that we're missing that character. I mean, we have it in the in the psychologist, but even the psychologist is given some humanity in his thinking. We're, we're we're meant to hate him. Yeah, he's an asshole, but professionally, it's hard to knock him not believing what Linda, Linda Hamilton is telling him. Yeah, it's an interesting critique. I wonder how instrumental Douglas is to our not hating Dr. Silberman, because like in like we see stages of badness to the facility instead of right. instead of just having Silberman be the antagonist. There we get like a greater evil. Yeah. Well, and I, I was grateful for that greater evil because so many movies like this would put Linda Hamilton in a in a institution like that and just gloss over the fact that she's probably also being abused by staff and yeah, you know they uh, this movie really didn't shy away from letting us know just how bad it was for her. What a thankless job uh, Ken Gibble was given in portraying Douglas. I read that uh, that he wasn't hitting Linda Hamilton hard enough in the fight scenes. And so when Linda Hamilton broke the handle to the mop, 
she actually hits him with it as hard as she can Whoa. and taking him to the ground like they were, they were uh, they did not get along on set <laughs> and i guess damn. she beat the shit out of him <laughs> that's for licking my face yeah wow and needing 11 takes to do it you piece of shit yeah <laughs> yeah he really went through some things wow ken gibble had one other role in 1991 and then wasn't in anything until 2015. Wow. Oh. He did it, the voice of the Terminator video game re-release in 2013. <laughs> <laughs> He's the end boss. Uh, some very marginal seeming comedy film noir mm-hmm. TV movie. It's going to feel pretty fucking real to you too. I really like in the, in the overall story of the film how the goals change. You know, like in the beginning, it's about protecting John. And then a little bit after that, it's about destroying T-1000. But no one even thinks about uh, killing Miles Dyson until the Terminator tells the story of Judgment Day. Like it just sort of occurs to them organically that maybe they should redirect their, their efforts towards that. And this was a story that they thought about using in the first Terminator film. And James Cameron mentioned that he's glad that they didn't because that really is is the center of this entire story in the sequel. It's another great thing about Sarah Connor. She's she's such a blunt instrument that it never occurs to her once she has a gun on Dyson to say, let me explain something to you. You create the apocalypse. <laughs> Like her whole idea is just like, I'm going to blow this guy's head off. It's all she's worked toward. And you realize Sarah Connor is not a complicated person, right? She's not, John Connor is smart. He's a smart kid. He's a savvy kid. Sarah Connor is, is like smart, but she's so single-minded. She doesn't have, uh, and, and, and I don't think it's a failure of writing. I think it's a success of the writing to make her so, She's uh, like obsessed with obsessed. Like one thing. Right. That's right. To the exclusion of all other things, for example, parenthood. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, you know, the parent, I'm, I'm going to love to read your paper. The parenthood in this movie, <laughs> the parenthood job is taken over by Friendly Terminator, which happens when he explains that all you have to do is go inside the trap door in his head and flip a switch. Yeah. Which and we never really see the switch like they pull out his CPU. This is the special edition which I think this is the first time I'd ever seen that uh this version cuz the 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 pulling the chip out of his head I don't think was in the theatrical release. No, I didn't remember it either. And that was the version that I watched. We didn't oh, you talk about the theatrical? Wh- I did. Yeah. What the hell? Ben and I watched the deluxe one. What did I miss in the extended version? Well, so there's one scene in the asylum where Michael Bean comes back, uh, and he is the the soldier that's sent back in the first film, oh, and he actually right. has a scene in Terminator 2 that was cut. He comes to her in a dream. Right. Uh, one of the most thankless role repri- reprisals in, <laughs> in movie history. Hey, you know that movie you were the star of? They're making a sequel. You're not in it. <laughs> Boy, he got done like that a couple of times because that happened to him uh, between Aliens and the third Alien film. All yeah. right. Oh, by the way, I, I recently learned that there was a a William Gibson penned sequel to Aliens that feature like that he's a character in. Yeah. Well, and they talked about. I think I read somewhere that they talked about when they were putting this movie together, having the Terminator come back, the T one thousand look like him. 
Mm. So that would have been his job, his role. Uh, yeah. To that would have really, been a lot like Face Off then, huh? Like It's very confusing. Watch your fucking mouth! I think, I think they felt like the audiences would just be uh, too confused. I would have been too yeah. confused. But so they have this conversation about like what, what's in the Terminator's mission parameters and and John Connor wants to change him so that he can like learn a little bit about how not to be such a dork. Like it kind of ties into the storyline of him teaching him kind of like SoCal slang. Yeah, this is the <laughs> don't have a cow moment. So there's an incredible sequence that was achieved partly by using Linda Hamilton's twin sister to do a fake mirror effect where Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton's sister are on one side of a like a false mirror, just like a hole in a wall that's dressed to look like a mirror and a rubber Schwarzenegger and actual Linda Hamilton are on the other side and she, like you see in the mirror like her peel back a flap of skin on his head and then there's like a a barrel that they pull out of his head and you see it happening in both angles and it sells it perfectly. It's fucking incredible. Wow. Uh, that they like pull the chip out of his head and like reset something. That using of, of Linda Hamilton's twin sister w- occurs later on in the film too. When T-1000 takes the form of Sarah Connor, it's her twin. That's, that's the more background version of the two, mm. but I didn't know that she was also in that, in that cut scene. That's great. Yeah, check it. I think it's on YouTube if you uh, okay if you search for it. So Linda Hamilton's twin sister also got super duper buff and ripped in the inter- intervening few years because so. she's as ripped as a person can be. But that scene, why did they cut it out of the theatrical version? It seemed. I mean, the problem with it was they didn't actually show what they did to the chip. It was like, what do you do? Turn, put it in backwards or something, and now he can feel or, or learn or something. But yeah, but it, I don't see why they would have cut it. It's got that moment where his eyes kind of deaden. Right. And that's, you know, I, th- I feel like that tells you a lot about like the character. And then Linda Hamilton's going to go smash the, the computer chip. And John like puts his his own hands in between her hammer and the chip to make her stop. Yeah. You guys have seen this film uh, probably as often as I have. I mean, which do you believe is the superior version? I really liked uh, seeing these the extended scenes. I mean, I thought huh. I thought they I thought they added a lot to it. I hate extended scenes, but I liked these. I'd, I generally like Apocalypse Now. Rid you? I want it burned in a pyre with Godfather Three. <laughs> but uh, but no, these just added. I thought funky. They added in a funky way. See, seeing seeing mm-hmm. a. Seeing Kyle come back and kind of make out with her, it was like a scene from Ghost. It's weird to think of a moment in Cameron's career where he wouldn't have, you know, chosen his vision. Like, right. like that he's actually taking studio notes at this point in his career is hilarious. Yeah, I don't know if they were studio notes or something that he chose to. Yeah. He, I mean, who knows? Who knows yeah. why they, they got taken out? Now open the port cover. We've, like, randomly watched a lot of movies about nuclear anxiety in the last few weeks. And I guess some of those are movies we watch for live shows. Some are things that aren't out yet, probably, as, as of the release of this episode. But uh, it's it's really uh, 
randomly like cropped up as something that's been on our minds lately. Um, how do you guys feel about the way this film deals with uh, that as an issue? Before this film, I think I always had it in my head that death during a nuclear war would be painless in some sick way, like the flash and the sound and then it's over. But this film paints a picture of a fair amount of suffering in in the moments before death. And I think that's a thing that has really stuck with me. I, like, I can't think of another film that makes it look so terrifying on like a micro level. Like when you see what happens in that playground, you know, so often you get like that satellite view of of an explosive or mm. I don't know, some other angle of it where you're, you're further away. Like superhero films do this a lot, like the building falling over, but you don't see the playground that the building falls on top of. And this film makes it all about the playground that the building falls on top of the metaphorical building. And yeah, a dream really gives you an opportunity to place a character in the middle of an unsurvivable thing like that. Yeah. Uh, this was another scene where Linda Hamilton's twin was involved. She plays oh. uh, Dream Sarah Connor in the dress, and that is Linda Hamilton's real son playing her son in that moment before wow. before dying. So there's a lot of like trippy head stuff happening. Yeah, uh, she did sequence. look she did look slightly un Sarah Connor, and it wasn't just because she was wearing a a uh, like an Amish lady dress. It was. <laughs> That she was a slightly different person. How incrementally off it was, I yeah. think, really serves that warped, dreamlike feeling yeah, of the time. whole thing. It looked like the Sarah Connor whose life had not been fucked up by right. future people. Her diner job provided a living wage. Right. In the city of Los Angeles. Can you imagine? <laughs> well, she, her, she bought a house next to the smelting factory. That's <laughs> 1991, <laughs> you could get a house in Los Angeles for $80,000. But and, and not to always be the voice in this podcast of someone who was 23 years old in 1991, although that is really my only job here. It's kind of inescapable, <laughs> that truth. But um, by that point in time, like I had grown up knowing full well and and you saw it over and over. And the day after was the thing that 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 scared all of us. But the idea that we would either be immolated in a firestorm and it would hurt or that we would survive it even worse was mm. something that we grew up kind of knowing was a certainty or, or it was, it was foreshadowed enough. But this time, 1991, we've the, you know, like the, the Berlin wall fell in the winter of 89, 89. So, and I'm talking about like December, or November of 89. Right. And so there was still a Soviet union for another year or so after that, while it all kind of came apart. So this, this fall, the end of October, I think it fell on my birthday. Way to make it about you, Ben. Let's find out. Is that out. what you wished for when you blew no, out the November candles? 9th, November 9th, not my birthday. I was, uh, not to be the guy that was... It was a delayed reaction. It's what I wished for, obviously. It just didn't happen immediately. <laughs> not to be the guy that had turned 21 a month before and was in Berlin when the wall came down. Mm, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was November. Anyway... Boy, you really made it about you. Not to be that. I thought, I thought Ben was doing it, but you really <laughs> stuck a giant hat on his hat. <laughs> but the uh, but this idea that and and we we were un, we labored under this paranoia for a long time afterwards that the the 
USSR was gone, but that the military industrial complex and the structures that had been built, the, the, um, doomsday device, the, the, the Skynet. I mean, we still call it Skynet that this was the real future. And this movie was, I don't think you can overstate the degree to which it had its finger on the zeitgeist of paranoia of the time. We all thought it would come to this and none of us, I mean, now it feels like, yes, our hubris is going to be the thing that undo that undoes us, but it's going to be genetic manipulation rather than, or just climate change, climate change. Right. But I mean, you know, it's going to be biological. I mean, when, when Boston dynamics keeps coming out with these, these robot dogs that can climb walls and you know, that you, that you get these black mirror scenarios, yeah. That's all scary, but not scary. Those dogs don't bark when Terminators come around. <laughs> no, they don't. They're Terminator dogs. <laughs> but the idea, I think, I think a contemporary movie like this, uh, or a contemporary a movie made now, the paranoias would be much more, we have a lot more class paranoia now. Uh, in 1991, you could still be rich and be the hero of the movie. Like Dyson is rich, and we never really... Are, that doesn't turn us against him and he his profit motive isn't the isn't even the center of his character he's just scientifically curious his right. his richness is a is a secondary factor whereas now i think our paranoia is a happy byproduct of his yeah that's of right his being a genius this is, this is what silicon valley still thinks of itself but but and he, they also still think that if a if a problem with their technology was pointed out they would uh, they would fix it, but right or they would say proof that, is in the pudding. That's not our problem. <laughs> Silicon Valley isn't as accepting of a black genius as this film is, though. Yeah. So Gattaca came out in '97. So yeah. six years later, we were already into a into a universe where we were starting to because Gattaca felt very original in its time in yeah. speculating that no, in fact, it's going to be gene manipulation. It's going to be the, the social divide is going to be between the perfect people and the lesser people, the garbage people, which which now feels way more like the future. Like nobody in Silicon Valley, all their their biggest fuck up, all it does is create a hostile social media environment. You know, like they don't they, none of those guys have their fingers on the on the button. Right. They're just they're just making bad apps. <laughs> And, and they're, they're, they had shitty parents, and they are shitty parents themselves, 100%. Yeah. It's wild how that works out, right? To make your point, yes, absolutely. I think uh, one of the things that this film does really well is give hope and then immediately take it away. Does this, I don't know, eight to ten times in the film. One of the parts of this film that I will always think of is that moment where Miles Dyson, you know, like they're, they're in the facility, they've got the stuff, they're ready to go. And Miles takes some bullets and he ends up blowing up his own lab, uh, by not being able to hold the trigger. That moment where he becomes the martyr of the film is such a great moment. And it is not the last time that we see that hope dissolved. The, the idea of Sarah Connor killing the T-1000 seems teased throughout the film, and it's what you want to have happen. 
And that moment when they're up in the scaffolding above the the molten steel and she runs out of bullets is so crushing. Yeah. Like like the music swells. He's teetering backwards toward the, the chain link uh, handhold. Like it's so close. And when it doesn't... She's almost got him. I understand why schwarzenegger has to deliver the kill shot but i wonder for how long they considered giving that to the linda hamilton character probably not for one second terminator's got to be the hero of the day but yeah yeah i wonder like that never leaves the uh that never leaves a conversation there are a couple of interesting moments and a real uh a real um echo in the fact that dyson when he blows up the lab he doesn't he sets it up where his hand is where he's holding his hand over the trigger it's the real dead man switch yeah where he's like i'm not gonna blow up the lab i'm just holding my hand here and if i die when i die my hand will fall and so he says to the he says to all the the uh swat guys he's like i don't know how much longer i can hold my hand here it's an incredible death scene yeah. yeah, but it's this dead man thing, and then at the end of the movie, when Schwarzenegger says, "I cannot self-terminate," and again, sort of um, insists that that someone else deliver him to his fate, and he t- he goes stoically. Both guys go stoically, but they do. Uh, they th- there's a certain amount of like I I'm not taking all the agency here, and that keeps me in a moral interregnum right yeah there is that gray area there which is great again great writing is it bad writing that they never fetch the other hand and throw that in there too or is that intentional to leave it open to sequelization you guys noticed that and you answered a big question about the about the terminator universe i didn't notice it and um and so I had this question and when I, when I raised it, you answered it immediately. So either it was intentional in which case, in which case it's genius. Cause it's never, the camera never goes back to it. They're yeah. again, really, really restrained. And I can't imagine that they didn't think of it. The prop right. was still in the, <laughs> in the gear. Somebody had to clean <laughs> it up later. So I, I mean, I don't, I'm not in the business of giving filmmakers too much credit. But you really have to hand it to him here. It really does seem like everything is super intentional and and thought out in this movie. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes it great. Speaking of its greatness, we should probably rate and review it, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well, we rate and review pork chop films just like any of the other friendly fire films. So for Terminator 2 Judgment Day... The responsibility falls on me. I've got to come up with that rating system. And to me, that was easy. I think there is <laughs> there's a, there is a thing that we did not interrogate too much in this film. It happens early on in the story, and it is John and his buddy Tim uh, knocking over an ATM machine. They, they use a little, a little computer hooked up to... Like a like basically like a Casio keyboard computer, uh, <laughs> plugged into a a card, a swipe card, with which they're able to go and extract money from an ATM. And easy money. 
It is not the machine that is the rating system. The idea that these kids go and take 300 bucks from an ATM machine and spend it exclusively on video games is a thing that I love. Like, they go to an arcade with it. And I don't know, Ben, if you were, if like arcades were a thing of the past for you when you were growing up. No, I, I, I played some arcade games in some arcades. There were very few times in my life, I'm thinking maybe birthdays only, where I was given a $20 bill and sent into a video <laughs> arcade, and the amount of quarters that came out of that machine, if you stuck a 20 in there, was yeah. incredible. So heavy yeah. in the pockets. And so <laughs> I'm thinking of these kids spending 300 bucks on video games, and I'm like, that's the story of T2, right? James Cameron gets a $100 million budget for this film, and he spends it on video games. <laughs> All of that money went into Terminator 2. It is the ultimate use of those resources. It is so much fun, and it holds up so great. I, I feel... I've got such conflicted feelings about it because I love the film so much. It is such a perfect distillation of what James Cameron does best. And like, I look at James Cameron's career now and I like grieve for the self-imposed avatar jail that he's in and all of the great action films that we're never going to get because of it. Like this is, this is the best stuff that a filmmaker does and he's just choosing not to do it anymore. And it makes me sad, but it, it doesn't make this film any less great. What he does with ensemble, what he does with action set pieces, what he does with effects that stand the test of time. I mean, there are some parts of this film that aren't perfect, but uh, it looks great. And none of it, none of what could be considered flimsy, none of its flimsy effect sequences uh, ruin the experience now in any way. And so on a scale of one to five, $300 ATM withdrawals, <laughs> uh, a lot like the review I gave Aliens, this is a perfect film for me. So it is, uh, it's $1,500, stolen dollars. It's all, <laughs> it's all five $300 withdrawals. That's the maximum, right? Was that the maximum back in 91 of a, of a withdrawal you could make? No, no. Because it's the withdrawal today. $500. That, that's the max, right? 500 was the max. And I think actually $300 was the max for a long time. So when I was getting my wife's engagement ring, I had, I like walked around town and hit like every ATM I could find because <laughs> <laughs> my jeweler wanted to be paid in cash. <laughs> so you have a $40 limit on ATM withdrawals? Yeah. Yeah, it's wild, right? <laughs> my uh, my truck has a thirty gallon tank, and gas stations routinely just cut off the gas at seventy five dollars. Wow! I'm wow! Like, Assholes! I will give you one hundred and twenty dollars worth of money right now to fill up my, the tank on my vintage truck. How much money would be worth like about one hundred and twenty bucks? How much money would be worth 120 bucks? Oh boy. About 120 bucks. You said you would give bucks. them 120 bucks worth of money. I would. I would. I would give them 120 <laughs> bucks worth of money instead of the $75 worth of money that they get. I don't see how that's hard to understand. Yeah. So perfect score from me. I did want to just throw in here that it was recently announced that there will be a Terminator film coming out this year that will serve as the third installment in this storyline. And Linda Hamilton is reprising her role of Sarah Connor wow. in it. 
And so it will uh, it will retcon the previous sequels to Terminator 2 and instead take their place. Do you accept any of those films in the Terminator universe? I saw the third film and I did not see any of the films after. I thought the third film was pretty good. That was the one where the, 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 T, the T-1000 was a lady. Yeah. And they went into yeah. a bunker in the mountains. Yes. Yeah, I thought that movie was good. I didn't know. Yeah, it was okay. How would you guys rate the film? Yeah, I'll come in I'll come in at fifteen hundred dollars. I think that like one of the superpowers of James Cameron like he is so great at the sequel. Mm. Like he understands exactly how like okay, you take everything that's true of, of the first one and you ask what else is true about the world and then you think of a great story to tell like both both enhancing our understanding of the world and also escalating the stakes. And He's like the writer who's better at punch-ups than he is at writing original works. Right. Except for he wrote Terminator, right? Yeah. Like, and, and I think that Terminator is like a perfectly good movie. It's just that this one is so much better. It's like, it's it's almost unbelievable that a sequel could be as much better as this, given the the starting conditions are the first movie's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, when was the last time you saw The Terminator? It might be 20 years since I've seen that movie. Really? Right. It's, I, I just don't return to it with interest. Really? As, as, as I would this film. Wow. It's got boobs in it. It's got that going for it. All right. I didn't even remember it had boobs in it, but that's the, that's the seminal one for me. That is like 80s action movie. Like, you're not allowed to release it if it doesn't have boobs in it, right? Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, that, that started to peter out right about then, 84. Yeah. Anyways, but but yeah, this this movie's great. I think uh, it is super fun, but it also spends some time like thinking about some big some big stuff, but also like has some some like awesome sci-fi mechanics that you can enjoy pondering. You know, like the the strength of it is that it like it feels like a real story set in a in a slightly unreal world and and that like like it's and it is amazing to watch it's an it's an amazing achievement like from every angle from a story standpoint from a performance standpoint from a technical standpoint from uh you know cinema cinematography standpoint it's from a helicopter pilotry standpoint Mm. it's fucking great i've praised this movie a lot uh during this episode and i haven't really tried to rip it a new one um, because it's truly deserving of a lot of praise. But there's a lot that's kind of <clears throat> somewhat off-putting to me too. And and some of it is the hasta la vista baby angle, which... That whole, like, we're going to teach the Terminator some, some catchphrases part is pretty rough. Chill out. It's the whole Arnold Schwarzenegger is an actor defined by his three catchphrases in every movie. I mean, he does it in Predator. He does it in every movie, right? It's just like, fuck you, asshole. Um, He says, I'll be back in both Terminator and Terminator 2, and neither time is it the way people say it in mm -hmm. quoting them. No. No, and it's the, just like I'll be back. It's a statement of fact, not like a not a threat, not like something he says before blowing somebody's head off with a shotgun. It's not what MacArthur says uh, as he's <laughs> <laughs> scramming. Yeah, uh, yeah. When the Terminator leaves the Philippines, 
Uh, but and, and and that's a that's a perfect example. When he says it in this movie, it is a kind of winking callback. It's meant to be a, a cheer line in the theater, and that stuff. That stuff is in such contrast to, for instance, the characterization of Sarah Connor that I that I love so much. Like this is a woman who has been that been brutalized for a decade now, uh, and and has this single minded like this heart of of iron. And then on the other hand, we've got this this robot that's like, ha ha, going to skateboard, like. Mm. It's a little bit, it's a little bit eighties, you know, that f- just feels eighties, early nineties. They did 90s. cut out the half pipe sequence <laughs> Where it's like, in this film. How does You're not going to find that on the extended version. <laughs> how do you chew gum? Like the scene where it's the kids asking him to learn to smile and it's just like, oh, right. We're having fun here. I felt like that was an extra scene too, right? So there's that. And there's a little bit the the datedness of some of the, I mean, some of the action sequences are so great that if they happened in a movie that came out now you wouldn't believe it i mean it would be cgi now or that helicopter would be on a dolly no one would risk that and that's right. phenomenal but this you c- wouldn't need to because it's it's perfect now like the the technology is there that except for we've seen it so much that it's like fucked out right like we're not we're not excited by seeing a helicopter fly under a bridge anymore because we see it in every movie but a lot of the there's just a lot of there's a lot of corn in it and there's a lot of um all the well, cops the farm subsidies kind of force the hands of producers <laughs> these days the thing is that's how uh, that's how the american economy is going to stay afloat in these tough times genetically <laughs> modified corn used in profusion in in uh, james cameron movies of the 90s so anyway that stuff draws me out Anyway, all that stuff just over the course of watching it, as thrilled as I was, I was reminded of its time. I was reminded of the limitations of the era, which should work in its favor and do. The limitations do work in its favor, but 20% of the time it doesn't. I don't know. I couldn't give it a perfect score. Mm. Uh, because the because the rating system allows for it, I'm going to give this... Thirteen hundred and fifty ATM dollars. Wow! All right. Even though it's in increments of three hundred, I feel like you could, if you went to enough ATMs, you could figure out a way to get thirteen hundred and fifty ATM dollars. And I would like to point out that he, the first thing he does with those quarters is goes to the Galleria, which I was high fiving all around, <laughs> and plays freaking Missile Command, which was already ten years old at that point. At least ten, at least a ten year old video game, so I was high fiving him right and left at that point. That's uh, that's the earliest depiction of Judgment Day in the film is the Missile Command game. As a side note, I'm sorry to to make this all about me. I'm sorry to buzz market my autobiography, mm. <laughs> but I, I was in the Civil Air Patrol in the early '80s, and we went up to um, Ielsen Air, Air Force Base in Fairbanks. And during the course of a, of a summer encampment that lasted a couple of weeks where we were living on the base and marching every morning and doing drills and going, seeing everything on the Air Force Base, we would, we'd spend a day with the fire department, a day with the, with the uh, F-4 pilots, you know. And one of those days, they took us to the NORAD operations room 
that had the big map. It had the, it had the it had the big board. It had Whopper. It did. It had a map of Alaska with every airplane in the sky identified by a dot and a code. Every single flying thing from the North Pole down on this giant three-story tall map of Alaska in a completely darkened room with people sitting at computer terminals. Absolutely right out of war games. And we had to go through three or four different security uh, doors where guys were looking looking at us through slots in the wall. It's where (laughs) I first heard the word duress. I'd never heard it before. And some guy asked me, are you under duress? Through a hole in the wall. Wow. And I was like, I, uh, you know, I was what, uh, 12. I don't know what's above me. I've never been in this building before. <laughs> I was 12 years old. I was like, what is dress? And the guy, like he, his eyes kind of <laughs> twinkled and he said, it means, does it mean, is anyone making you do this? And I was like, that's great. No. And he was like, okay. And the door, the little slot slammed. And then the door, I, I climbed into a, like a rotating door and it rotated me around yeah. only one person at a time. Anyway, at the end of the day, on each of these days, we would go back to the to the PX to the dining hall to eat with the air to with the airmen, and there was a missile command there at the dining at the PX or the, not not the PX the at the mess hall, and we would line up to play this missile command game, and none of us in 1980 or 81 made the connection. It did not even for a second occur to us that we were literally in missile command and we were (laughs) playing missile command like didn't put it together i think about i marvel at that how how how, what well at what bad parenting we must have been receiving yeah can i ask you a question about this scene yes how was the food because it has been uh my understanding that the food on submarines is extremely good and so my hypothesis is that like the tougher the job or circumstances or the more, or the deeper you are in a mountain or underwater, the better the food has to be. Do you remember it being good? Well, here's the thing, Adam. I hate to make this all about me, uh-huh. but I have had a sit down dinner on a submarine uh-huh. and it was only fine. Maybe they save the good stuff for being underway. Are you sure? Are you sure it was a sit-down dinner and not a game of hide the turd? No, John? no. I'm afraid it was. A, <laughs> it was a white tablecloth uh, thing. They had sev- they, several courses. We had stewards, the whole thing, and it was only wow. fine. Hmm. The Air Force mess hall was just like you would. It was like a bad junior college mess hall. Oh no! <laughs> it was. It, it wasn't all the way to like somebody with with. Uh, plastic gloves just slopping some some shit on a shingle on a metal tray but it wasn't that different from that but this was 1980 right these days they're eating filet mignon i'm sure hope so it's a tough job thanks for letting me go down memory lane there fellas well i'm ready to go down my guy lane (laughs) ready to hear who my guy is yes my guy is out of the way so early in this film I don't think we've even reached double digits in runtime by the time you see him come and go. Uh, My guy is Lloyd, and he shows up uh, at the end of that scene where the Terminator has already obtained the clothes from the biker inside. As he's leaving the bar, it's Lloyd that confronts him on the stoop. And it's Lloyd that after having seen what the Terminator is capable of, says... uh, at the butt end of a shotgun, I can't let you take the man's wheels. 
<laughs> and he says son at the end of it. There is like a, there's such a quiet heroism to him where he's like, he knows probably that he's not going to live through this interaction or he's going to get maimed, but he has such a code and that code of bikers is such that like you can get into a fight with a biker, you can strip a biker nude and leave him in, in the kitchen of a bar, but what you can't do is take his bike. And so Lloyd marches out there and is like, I've got to do, I've got to enforce biker code. And I think... Oh, and nobody's tried a shotgun on this guy yet, so. <laughs> My hypothesis is that the Terminator respects this enough to not kill him. Instead, he just takes the shotgun from him. I thought so, too. And that ends up, for whatever reason, saving his life. So Lloyd's my guy. My guy is uh, kind of right at the halfway mark of the movie. Um, they, uh, I don't know if this will have been in the version you watched or not. Adam, but uh, they stop oh, no. at like a at like a roadside burger shack, and this is kind of right in the in the thick of the like you need to you need to learn some some cool terms uh, conversation between John and the Terminator. I love that scene because no one's ever looked as dour eating a hamburger than Sarah Connor does in that moment. <laughs> but uh, but by way of uh, providing an example John Connor walks up to the window at the burger shack and says hey lady nice place you got here how's business wow. and the lady just says give me a break <laughs> <laughs> I was like man like I love the idea that this like New York ass lady has somehow found herself in the middle of this shitty desert in California yeah working working the counter at a burger stand so that she can unload some some New York attitude on a chipper young kid that comes up to her window. God. Yeah. That, <laughs> it's like how every cop in every movie is is a fucking New Yorker and it's like why? Yeah. <laughs> Just cuz it like it sounds right when somebody says give me a break in that accent, you know. Yeah. Uh my guy is I think one of the real heroes of this movie. <laughs> Uh, which is, uh, we've talked about him already, Todd Voigt, the stepfather of John yeah. Connor. Todd and Janelle selflessly took in this orphan child whose mother- no, they took the orphan child in because they get paid by the foster system. <laughs> well, They're obviously not in it for actually Jesus, being parents. Ben. Still, still, it's very difficult work. Foster parenting is very difficult work, especially with a child that has been raised in survivalist encampments, uh, being told that- um, that they are the leader of a future rebellion after the apocalypse comes. Imagine fostering a child like that, Ben. It would be a lot of hard, hard work. If they were doing it for money, there would be seven other foster brothers at the home. Yeah. It's just one. They have zero compassion for this kid. <laughs> uh, the, he's a loving father, Todd. And unfortunately, you know, he's also a henpecked guy. Janelle just won't get off his back. Yeah. She's con She <laughs> wants him to like discipline the kid she he's in the middle of a show she's like he hasn't cleaned his room for a month and and todd is like oh well i'm glad it's an emergency then let me get let, i'm glad you interrupted me watching my show in the middle of the yeah. day inexplicably and then uh, al pacino walks in and he says all right you can ball my wife <laughs> and sleep around in her postmodernistic bullshit house but you cannot watch my motherfucking television Anyway, I feel like Todd. I feel like Todd and Janelle 
did a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. You know, Todd dies a, a bad a bad death, uh, making I think a reasonable request that the dog uh, Max uh, be like I don't know. To, it's his anti dog sensibility that just that. The dog doesn't want to be there either. I, I think Todd recognizes they're in a suburban environment now and like a weaponized combat shepherd isn't probably the best <laughs> neighborhood dog. <laughs> Todd's got a cool car. Uh, I feel like Todd is a guy you could hang with. I feel like probably Todd and John Connor had some good hangs when Janelle wasn't henpicking them both. So he's my guy. I just really felt like if I had been lucky enough to have a stepdad like Todd Voigt, uh, maybe my life would have turned out a different way. Mm. Aspirational dad, right there, yeah. Todd Voigt. Todd Voigt. Todd. Todd Voigt, played by the uh, by the great Xander Berkeley. Feel like you made that choice at me. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, well, that's the end of our uh, our monthly pork chop ep. Uh, and I guess the deal is that uh, we never announce the, the movies before these come out. So, sure uh, don't. Hope you enjoyed this one, and uh, we'll be back at you next month with another. Pork chop, pork chop. We need a pork chop theme song. Pork yeah, chop, should... pork chop, roly poly pork <laughs> Did chop. Did Edwin Starr ever write anything about <laughs> <laughs> chops? Good God, y'all. <laughs> What is a pork chop? Absolutely delicious. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> well, uh, we'll leave it with Rob's from there. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler awaits. Friendly Fire's Pork Chop Feed is a Maximum Fun podcast. It's hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Make sure to use the hashtag FriendlyFire when posting about the show on social media. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I am at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks so much for supporting Friendly Fire. Tell a friend... We'll see you next month with another pork chop film. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.